Welcome to Changelog, Episode 4. I'm Chris, your bumbling game designer. Today we're speaking with Quinn Wilson about crunch and designing games that are mindful of the core emotional impact they're aiming for. Are you ready, Intropot? Let's begin! Then hi, hello, and welcome to Change Life. Uh, what is your... Okay, so I'm here with with uh, my pal Quinn, Quinn Wilson. You may have heard of them. Uh, would you like to uh, tell us uh, what you do and uh, what your preferred pronouns are? Sure. My name is Quinn Wilson. My preferred pronouns are he and they. I do a lot of stuff. I am on <laughs> a couple of podcasts, the... Biggest one, which just launched recently, is Arms of the Tide, which is an actual play of Mutants in the Night by DC. I am also semi-frequent contributor to the Orpheus Protocol, and I've got a podcast that I do with the GM of that podcast called The Campfire, where Rob and I talk about long-form narrative storytelling in games and how we approach that in actionable ways. First time hearing about Campfire, I need to subscribe to that. (laughs) It is available to listeners through the Orpheus Protocol Patreon feed, Ah. but the Campfire specifically is available to non-patrons. Okay. Uh, Awesome. I will go go search that out then, Uh, because that sounds really interesting. Also, uh, one of the reasons uh, I, I wait, I've I've listened to uh, Swallows of the South for a while and and been um, uh, following you on Twitter for equally as long, mm-hmm. uh, and I've I've so I've always uh, like been a fan or whatever. <laughs> Most of all, like I you sometimes have tweet threads about game or game design or game or story theory mm-hmm. uh, even, and they're always very insightful to me i like to read them they make me think about things in a way i don't normally uh, especially since uh your gming style specifically is pretty different than mine or it, it comes across as different than mine in that you're able to like weave these longer seemingly thought out stories uh and and interconnected <laughs> webs of things whereas i'm just like if we make it to the end of this four-hour session without me blowing something up because I don't know what to do with it, uh, we're good. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, in practice, I, uh, it certainly feels a lot more like what you just described yeah. uh, as your process while I'm doing it. So Yeah. Okay, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, uh, it might also be worth taking a brief detour to mention that I have designed a couple of games, including Flavortown, A Modern Tall Tale, and Queer Fantasy Road Trip, both of which are relatively small, and I am yeah. currently working on another game in production. No, if small games are important, and I think you people should make more small games because that's that's how you get started. That's the that's the gateway drug to game design, uh, and also you learn a lot from small games. Uh, so you can't say mm-hmm. you said you, you said you can't say much like about what you're working on now, right? Yeah. So I've got another project that i'm working on i can't say too much about it right now i can say that it involves trying to capture some of the uh structural and narrative and emotional beats of shonen battle anime and manga in the way that it's designed 
but I can't say too much beyond that right now. But that's a larger scale project for sure. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that because I feel like I feel like you are are pretty well suited to make that game. Thanks. Uh, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> you know, I want to be mindful of mm-hmm. my cultural position and stuff when I'm making yep. something like that as well. So. Yeah, uh, it's, that's a, a topic we've talked a lot about on Changelog. I'm I'm in a, a similar situation with like the the inspiration for Hard Space Hustle also comes from mostly anime. I mean, we've got Firefly, but also I don't I, I don't I, I for some reason it's harder for me to claim Firefly because I don't know, like Joss Joss Whedon turned out to be kind of a yeah uh, just, yeah uh, <laughs> pretty much. Plus, it's also just not true. It just happens to be Fireflies in the same vein. I mm-hmm. started out like I love the types of stories in Cowboy Bebop and Outlaw Star, and those are both anime. Right. Uh, anyways, so we start off our icebreaker question way after the ice has been broken <laughs> is uh, if you're uh, making a game or you are looking for a game to run or play in, what's like the the smallest distilled thing you can think of that makes it a a game for you or by you like what what is what is the dna you're looking for or putting into tabletop rpgs for me it is a very well considered and hopefully well articulated uh intent as it relates to the emotional experience that a game is designed to provoke in someone mm-hmm. so Games that really set out to say, when you play this game, these are the things that you should be feeling through the experience, and mechanics should be built in such a way that supports and enforces that. I think that's probably the biggest thing that makes me excited about a game and that I try to incorporate into my own work. Uh, can you can you think of any games, possibly ones that you've already made, uh, that, that do it particularly well, that come to mind when you think of this? Um, I mean, since I've only got two in the can, I think that you can <laughs> make arguments about Flavortown or Queer Fantasy Road Trip. I think mm. that Flavortown hopefully operates in a way that makes you think about your obligations to your own self-interest versus your obligations to your community mm-hmm. and how that is reflected in like the ethos of broader American food and reality television culture. Yeah. Where Queer Fantasy Road Trip is a little bit more designed around the freewheeling, sometimes deeply sad, sometimes openly adventurous feeling of like adolescent road trip fiction. Mm-hmm. I wrote it after I played Final Fantasy 15, and I'm like, I want to capture the feeling of this in a game. And the times that I've run it and seen it in action, I feel like I've been able to really see in action that sort of idea of that crystallizing moment of growing up being expressed through play. I've only, like, in the last couple of years started thinking of, uh, and and, and to be honest, if I'm just being super honest, it's been, like, the last six months that I've been thinking about, like, uh, this stuff on a higher level. Rather than just what how it makes how like media and games make me feel in the moment or whatever, and then and trying to dissect like 
how it happened, how it made me feel like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm pretty new to it as a whole. Do you know? Is there a, a explicit like this game is supposed to evoke this, or or do you find that it? I know I know it's becoming more on purpose now. That the the intentional um, emotional impact of games in in the indie game space. I'm not a hundred percent sure it's showing up on purpose in the larger games because most of those are like pulp adventure, right? And they're power fantasies in a way, I guess. So maybe they do. Maybe they yeah. have always thought of, of what they want the player to feel. So I think, exactly, because play experience, what you get when you interact with the dice and such, that should ideally create some sort of like visceral, physiological, or emotional reaction. And I yeah. think that a lot of these games are designed around these ideas and trying to pursue them. Mm-hmm. I think there are degrees to which these larger games are successful in achieving that i think Mm -hmm. that the d20 plus modifier system that dungeons and dragons tends to use for example really comes heavily at odds with the more um pulpy or picaresque intentions that seems to be communicated by a lot of the discourse around D, if not the texts themselves so The game says we want you to feel cool and heroic. Maybe even there's like a little bit of a zero to hero thing. Yeah. But you've always got that 5% chance of just completely cheesing it yeah, in a way. And, and in a bad way, in a big way. In a And some of that is discourse that is not directly coded into the rules. So there's yeah. some play culture elements that you see there in regards to like the crit fail, crit success thing. Yes, I've rallied against the D20 very publicly, and even I have that just kind of hard-coded into my gamer brain when someone rolls a 20 or a 1, something big should happen, and that's not been, as far as I know, that's not been in the book for a little while, right? I don't know if it ever was. Oh, you're you're not wrong. I don't think you're wrong. I'm not entirely sure. I didn't come into Dungeons & Dragons specifically until 4th edition. Yeah. But I don't think that it was ever specifically hard-coded into the rules. I just think that it was a a play culture thing. But mm-hmm. even without that element of play culture, your statistical spread with a D20 plus modifier puts you in a position where, especially with scaling difficulty levels, the statistical probability that you're going to succeed on something that you're very good at isn't necessarily as high as you might want it to be. Right. If that were the idea of the game. Right. And then there's some of these bigger games, like if you look at something like uh, Shadowrun or what have you, uh, it's also trying to build like a specific play experience and an emotion. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that centers around the nitty gritty specific elements of the game that's why you have a lot of charts and tables and stuff very granular and there is something that can be said about the visceral or tactile experience of playing a game and being a valid thing to approach and integrate into your design it's something that you might want to consider accessibility around Mm -hmm. Uh, that can be a barrier sometimes if you look at games like dread that is not a game that is necessarily deeply uh, accessible to everyone, but at the same time, it also creates 
a very good synergy between its mechanics and the intended emotional experience. Yeah, probably one of the more directly tied mechanics to emotional experiences that I've I've seen in game design. Mhm. Uh especially for, like and, and pretty like elegant like what they're trying yes. to evoke is almost always going to be evoked because we've all had that feeling of like pulling a thing and it almost falling off and just that just if you're just playing Jenga that's stressful that that makes you tense but having right. a, a like a character's life on the line that you've gotten to know and interact with uh i don't know i just i just when when i heard the concept of it i was like oh wow <laughs> right it it so neatly and tightly captures on an emotional level and on a physiological level the experience of consuming horror media but back to something like shadow run mm-hmm. i think that it's a valid emotional experience i think that there's a lot of problems structurally with shadow run so don't get mm-hmm. me wrong um yeah. On a narrative and a mechanical level. Um, right. But we're talking about mechanics right now. Right. Where I still think that it is a valid experience to look at the like emotional experience of building up a Shadow Runner mm-hmm. who's like supposed to be a crack agent uh at one thing or at like their special set of skills. So you're like a special operative in this one domain. And then finessing a situation in such a way that you are able to gather up your giant pool of d6s and -hmm. get to engage in the visceral satisfaction of shaking those up and rolling Uh them and seeing how the results come out exactly i get i get the same feeling that's one of the reasons i like genesis of star wars so much is once you're competent at something you can like feel how competent you are in your hands when you roll the dice Mm -hmm. right and there's something with the Shadowrun, particularly, or games that are modifier-heavy. I think that there are... There's a lot of valid criticism around the idea of games that have big pools of modifiers Mm -hmm. for things. Where you're like, okay, so I got a plus one from this, a plus two from that, but I got a minus four for, like, inclement weather, but then I also have, like, a specialization training, which allows me to negate that penalty, as well as... Like, the scope on my rival gives me a plus three. Mm-hmm. So, like, add that all together. If the desire is to present a power fantasy, uh-huh. the way that you're able to look at that chart and say, I was going to do this, mm-hmm. but because of my mastery and understanding of the systems of engagement and my character's work that they've put into becoming the person that they are, and maybe having the things that they have, mm-hmm. I instead get to engage with something that much bigger, uh-huh. can be a viscerally satisfying like emotional experience. Yeah. But also, I'm not sure that I can point to with something like Shadowrun and say, like, this is the core emotional tone that you should be coming out of the game with. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure if you're supposed to be successful or unsuccessful in your resistance of the cyberpunk hellscape. Yeah. Um, And that informs a lot of the emotional content of the game, especially the shades on something like a victory or a loss in that. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I just wanted to do, I guess, sort of a short in defense of 
a certain kind of crunch. It's not my bag particularly, but I recognize how it creates a play experience that people enjoy. Yeah. Uh, When you get to that level of granularity, like if, uh, if you succeed at something that wasn't hard, there's a little, it's a little less daunting. Like I, I, um, uh, I have trouble with story games for the opposite reason of this. And I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, of like story and crunch uh and, and honestly I've, I've i've waffled back and forth between them too depending and on what i need if you listen to the campfire you'll find that rob and i are harshly critical of that dichotomy we think that it is a false dichotomy yeah and effective game design marries the two of them <laughs> yeah and, and i'm i'm uh hoping to do that with game design too i'm i'm also pretty new to game design so we'll see how well i do i know i i second guess myself a lot with crunch because it requires a mathematical mind that I'm not sure I have. I, I have, mm. mm-hmm. I, get, I, I get system mastery after a while. Like I learn some, I learn things very well, but I'm not sure how well I am at generating crunch, uh, but w- right. in a way that's not clunky and, and hard to interact with. Mm-hmm. I absolutely feel that in the project that I'm taking on right now. One of the biggest <laughs> things that I have concern for is like probability spreads and yeah, like how much oomph is enough oomph to change things in a meaningful way or what have you because i don't have a statistical background that lets me right. say like i know what it's going to look like like i know yeah. that on any given die the expected average roll is like half of the maximum number and yeah. a half <laughs> but that's it yep yeah. uh and and like I can look things up. I, it, it just it, it just add a layer of of uncertainty for me that makes it hard to design. But as long as the play experience is something you're keeping in mind, crunch isn't bad. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And and like like you said, taking like having in a in a non crunchy game, taking something from impossible to I'm an expert at this and I can do it, no problem, is is something like you get from crunchy games. Uh, because no no one else but your character in this situation could do this. Uh, right. And, and that is the power fantasy that, that we're talking about, I think. With and I'm, I'm quite fond of crunch, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Again, the crunch should be intentional and directed. Yes. Genesis and like the Star Wars games by Fantasy Flight are relatively crunchy, but they're yeah. designed around providing a specific kind of experience. Yes. Um, and I think that they're generally successful, even if there are some areas that like I I take issue with or I think could be sharper. Yeah. Another benefit that you can find in games that are more mechanically robust is basically it opens up more potential for long-form storytelling. Yes. Having something like areas for progression and more robust systems allow you to sort of grow into things over time. And it's okay if you play like 60-session campaign of apocalypse world or uh, dungeon world or something but the mechanics themselves aren't actually designed to support that no they're designed for pretty curated campaign experiences and i think that in many respects that's a good thing you should have games that are designed to say in between four and twelve sessions yeah your character is probably going to hit like the height of their competence Mm -hmm. in a way 
that basically says this is where you should put on the brakes and be done telling the story. That's what this yeah. system is designed to do. I think that's something that, that some games don't highlight very well is like something we never learn is to how to end games because most of the time they just fall apart and that right. that, that sucks. It, there's like no. Anyways, I I, just, I do I definitely think that like the ending, how long your game should run, is something you should keep in mind too. Now I agree, like with crunchier games that becomes way more nebulous because like you can Cinda from, from she's a super geek and pandas talking games often talks about like, uh, because she likes to run lasers and feelings a lot mm-hmm. that that game is very specifically a two hour one shot. And to try to run it more than that is boring in some ways, because once you get, it has one mechanic, right? Right. And, and that's, that cap encapsulates what you were saying completely is like the more systems, as long as they're still working together, the more systems a game has, the more longevity it has, uh, which isn't right. a good or a bad thing. It's just something to keep in mind when you're designing and playing. Exactly. And so I personally have a fondness for running longer form games. I'm a campaign style yes. GM. I Me like too. to take say 25 episodes to tell a season of a show and then, yeah, go off and do five more of those mm-hmm. in a way that creates like this long form building narrative because I enjoy that. I think that there's yeah. a way that um to to make a comparison to the state of television a lot yes. of these games that are designed say all right, let's run this for 4 to 12 sessions and then we're done telling this story. Mm-hmm. Um they're like the trend in like Netflix or um, HBO miniseries these days where they're like, all right, so we're going to do this. It's going to be this long where, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. It's my preferred mode of gameplay. The other like games with like a longer tail on their mechanical progression allow you to tell something that is more like long running televised Mm -hmm. fiction. So you can tell something with more arcs. Yes. And more, um, like, long-term character development and stuff. Also just dig in deeper, yeah. Exactly. Like, I like to go really deep. And sometimes like, the start of a campaign sets the tone for a little while. But sometimes you'll have something that mm-hmm. emerges and changes the tone. And uh, if that's happening in something... almost always. Uh, yes, exactly. I would agree with that. And that involves both emergent elements of storytelling and emergent elements of characterization. Mm-hmm. But the, like, knowing that happens, like, this event happens, and it's like, oh, okay, now I see what this is. But we only have two more sessions. Yeah. Um, Can be fine. And, like, that you can say, like, okay, so we're taking a turn, and in these last two sessions, we're going to ride this thing out. Mm-hmm. But I have a fondness for long-term storytelling. Um, Obviously, I should <laughs> say. Seeing as how I'm looking at saying, I want to make a game that's based on shonen, anime, and manga. (laughs) Which don't end, ever. Which comes from an industry that's notorious for creating a state of the industry wherein you need to consistently continue to publish long after what might be, like, an intended end point. Yeah. For the sake of of commercial viability and your livelihood. And I think that the people who tell those stories well engage in it in such a way that allows them to develop things in ways that doesn't feel manufactured um, or in ways that allows them to reset and play with the status quo 
like Jojo's Bizarre Adventure is great because Hirohiko Araki looks at a story and says, "All right, let's let's put the pieces down. Let's see where they go." And then when I'm done telling that story, I'm done telling that story. Let's put it all away and start up a new story in a different place with a different person. Right. So that can be cool. But I also like being able to look right now. I'm watching Hunter Hunter, mm-hmm. um, which is beautiful. It's also deconstructive in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but the way that the story escalates and changes over time, you're only allowed to see because it takes 148 episodes to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is kind of a luxury for people who play role-playing games or it right. can be. Scheduling is really hard. It's really easy for a game to fall apart. Mm-hmm. One of the primary reasons I've been able to keep a game group together for as long as I have is because I'm recording a podcast. Yeah. And even then I've had two major cast changeouts. Yeah. So It's it's a rough one. <laughs> right. But I love the potential of yes. the medium for that. And I also love the potential for being able to take one session and make you go, "Wow." that got straight to it and gave me the thing that I wanted. Mm -hmm. It's a thing of intentionality. Like I said, you want to know the experience that you want to provide, and I like games that know that. So I think that's taken me about half an hour to say. (laughs) I'm really bad at at pacing this situation, because I just also just want to hear what people say. (laughs) But yeah, like this is about as long as this section always takes. I don't know why I keep trying for 15 minutes. Yeah, it's a good aspiration. (laughs) uh okay so man i super agree with everything you just said so good job uh now let's move into all the things i got wrong from my last build of hard space hustle let's talk about it so uh i've i've just completely removed convictions uh i always forget at some point to even bring them up in play. It was very much a thing that I just kind of like, oh, I want to tie narratives to mechanics some way, but I don't know how. So I just took it from, I think 7th C is the closest thing I could think of that I stole mm-hmm. it from. I think it's literally called Convictions in 7th C. Mm-hmm. But it's not really set for the tone we're in. Like in, in these these uh, kind of fringe society weirdos in space stories, convictions aren't really a big part of it. Like, if you think of any of the characters, their primary drive is they don't have convictions. So, mm-hmm. I think that's interesting, but I'm not sure that I agree with you. Okay. I think that generally these characters tend to have a sort of overriding conviction that puts them in the space where they tend to do things which, ge- while generally illegal, are in the space that other people would not because their convictions dictate that they need to. I'm doing yeah. this distasteful thing in the interest of something else. At the same time, I can see talking about convictions and the way that they exist in Hard Space Hustle after this last session and the way that things have sort of gone for you um, mm. with like, okay, convictions don't seem to come up that much. No, uh, and they, don't, they also don't push things as much as I'd like them to. Well, right. So I, I can hear that you sort of have two choices. You can say, I need to find a more mechanically integrated and robust way to approach engaging with convictions, or I need to question if it's central to the play experience of the game that I'm trying to build, and then if the answer is no, I can kick it to the curb. Hopefully I've found a way to to 
get the same emotional thing as a conviction with more, in my opinion, tonally appropriate and uh, integrated uh, mechanically thing, which are called weights. Okay. So, and I'm not limiting it to two. I think uh, at, at character creation, you're only going to get two. For one shots, you only get two. Because after that, it gets unwieldy to deal with. Mm-hmm. But right now, the max is around five because they do have a mechanical benefit. But I don't mind you cheating the mechanics a little bit by getting more weights because in order to refresh your weights, you've got to talk about it. So weights are just anything weighing you down or, or anything that's that's preoccupying you or anything that's hard, hard for you to deal with or that you're not dealing with. Uh, and specifically, it's things like traumas from your past or uh, laws, like rules you have given yourself that complicate your life or like it could be literally you're wanted for something and you can't mm. go. It's just something yeah. complicating your life that you can't shake. Okay. Easily. I see that. Um, I like the question that in the context of the genre that you're working in, it mm-hmm. creates a difference in the question that you're asking. Right. Where your first question with convictions is almost asking, like, what's your code? Yeah. Where I think that it is a much more genre-appropriate question yeah. to ask the way that you're pivoting to weights mm-hmm. is what's your baggage? Yeah, What's what, what are you dealing with? Why are you like this? Right, because if you look at Cowboy Bebop, Everyone's got a shitload of baggage that they're carrying. So much baggage. (laughs) And it's about exploring that baggage. Exactly. And, like, the way that that baggage comes to, like, comes home to call, basically. I don't think that's the actual phrase, but we'll go with it. (laughs) And the way I'm I'm doing this is, A, and we talked about this during our playtest, and you agreed with me. And as far as I know, most people I talk to agree with me. D20 kind of sucks. I keep the D20 because I know a lot of people like D20s. They just, they just, it's, it's like, um, the smell of cooking bread or something. It's something Mm -hmm. that makes them feel safe and happy and and familiar. Uh, however, I'm making this game. Yes. It's a game I want people to have fun with, but it's also a game that I'm making and, and I should, I should make games. I should make Chris games. Right. And I think that the percentage of your audience who's going to come to a certain point in the game and say, oh, Really? If not for if they if he had included a D twenty, I'd be all in. Like I imagine that's a very small percentage of like the yeah. gaming population, especially people who have branched out from their initial point of game. Yeah. I would hope. Like this is probably not gonna be anybody's first game. <laughs> so uh they're probably moving around. Even if well if I guess it was, they wouldn't know about the D twenty. Um and that's a luxury that we kind of have as game designers. Yeah. Because of the culture around gaming, especially in the indie space, yeah. where it's like, yeah, no, it's not your first game. I don't need to include like a BS section that says what is yeah. a role-playing game. Yeah, You can include a section that says this is what this role-playing game is. Exactly. And that's what I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do. I do want it to be um, easy to get into, but I don't know how easy I can make it. Other people have done that work for me is the thing. As, as much as people complain about D and D, it does onboard a lot of people, and mm-hmm. and for good and bad, they're like that means they enter, enter our space with with preconceptions, yeah, and sacred calves and stuff. It takes hard; it's harder to dismantle. But right, they it also they get an idea of mm-hmm. what we're doing, and we're not some weird alien species going blah 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 at them. Right. Um. Anyways, I got I fucking just I took the D twenties out. I I don't like them. I. I'm excited to hear what you did instead. I had some thoughts about what you might do, so I'm interested to hear about what you did do. So you've got two options. You can mark your weights. 
just put a little mark next to them. Uh, you can only mark them once. If you if you do this before you've rolled, you are you are bringing your emotions and baggage into the situation, and and what the the, the things that it's taught you and and the desi- the drive it's given you to not die or or to not fail just sizes up all of your positive dice for the roll, which I think is better than just putting a swingy d twenty in there. I think every time someone's used a conviction point up to this point, they've still rolled in their actual range that they would have otherwise. Like, mm-hmm. you rolled a four or something. I believe... I double-rolled twos. Yeah. It's... It's not... It's just not satisfying. Whereas, just being able to get all the bigger dice, A, it makes you more likely to... It makes it all across the board, you're more likely to succeed, and you're more likely to, to succeed well. And and now you've marked your thing. You can also mark it after you've rolled to re-roll any number of your dice in, in, that you've already rolled. Um, which is obviously less powerful because it doesn't raise the number you can get at all, but it does give you like emotions you've you've the things you've dealt with in your past have made you not want to fail at this or, or to try harder to go again. Uh, you're drawing from another reserve uh, and going for it. Okay, which it isn't a perfect solution, but it's it's one that I'm working with now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more interesting part of this is that's just a, those are just reasons to make you mark your uh, uh, weights. Right. And I have some thoughts about uh, alternative mechanics that you might consider if you want to hear those. I would love to. Okay. Uh, so, if you want to continue on that train of thought that you were on yeah. just before, that's great. I just wanted to make sure, like, I didn't want to foreclose on the space in the conversation mm-hmm. to say, hey, I have some thoughts. Yeah. Uh, so, the the reason you mark weights is is because you have to give you a reason to unmark them. And the only way to unmark them is for your character, either in character to other characters or in character as a monologue, grapple with that weight, the thing you marked to do it. To, to unmark it, you've got to engage with that narrative thing in your past. And this is, this is like the, the, one of the protagonists walking in the rain, smoking a cigarette, talking to themselves about the love that they left back on Mars or it's sitting at a bar telling a stranger about uh the the ridiculous amount of debt you're in that you will never be able to pay off or mm-hmm. it's finally snapping at your teammate and telling telling them why you the reason you can't stand them is because your ex-lover had the same tick or something that they have. Right, it's, right. It's that kind of thing. And then you get to unmark mm-hmm. it, and you, you get that power back again. Mm-hmm. I, I like the way that that creates the incentive there. I think that's really good. Also, it gives more reason. Like, I have a, a carry that weight thing. When you get taken out in combat or social situations, when your turn comes around, if you monologue or tell us something that about your, your weights, you size up your, your uh, uh, abilities. When mm-hmm. you come back, when you do come back, because you come back with, you, you've had time to to grapple with your mortality or mm-hmm. the situation, and you come back with more fire, right? And that and that gives like a, a like you you could make up, you could just be thinking about the situation you're in right now, but if if that's not there, it gives you inspiration. You can always think about one of your weights, right? Uh, okay, I like that a lot. That's basically what I've got for weights. What what are your opinions? What were your opinions on the other ways to reflect that? Okay, so I like the idea of having an option or options on the front and back end of a role. Yeah. I think that if you want to incentivize people invoking these so that you get more opportunities to have these scenes about these weights, I think that's really good. I think that you might want to consider 
a different mechanical incentive on either end. Um, so I think that on the front end, instead of doing a size up, what you might want to do is give a flat bonus of some sort mm-hmm. and then add that to the rolled value. So that might be something that is reflective of the die type. Maybe it's half the die size rounded up. Maybe it's the maximum face value of the die, and then you get to roll the die and add that to that. Right. Um, that way, you are even sort of more guaranteed. So you can be like, okay, I'm burning this conviction, and instead of saying, going from like, I have like a one in four chance that I'm going to roll a one, to mm-hmm. I have a one in six chance that I'm going to roll a one, you can say, like, a one is no longer on the table. I'm like, assured of a certain level of success. Right. And then on the back end, and these are just like ideas that I'm I'm having off the top of my head, so they don't necessarily need to be like great. These are just uh, yeah. take them if you brainstorming. Yeah. Uh, on the back end, I think that I like the idea of rerolling. I just listened to the episode of RPG Design Friends about yeah. rerolls. I also think that it might be interesting. And this might be some of the stuff that um, engages with my visceral, like, shifting things on dice instincts Mm -hmm. or impulses. What if you could say, I can take the highest, or I can take one of the dice that I rolled, and I can just automatically set it to its highest value. And maybe that'll take me over the difficulty. Or, conversely, I can take one of the difficulty dice... And set it to a one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure how that relates to your intended play experience, but those are thoughts I have off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I'm, not, I'm definitely not uh, against that. I'm wondering if the, the back end maybe re- you could rearrange your dice. So, like, you could, you could move positive and, like, you could, you could switch out, like, oh, I rolled an eight on this difficulty. Let's just switch it with the one I rolled on my s- success thing. Mm-hmm. And now... So, so, so you, it's all there. You just get to re- move them around uh, a bit. I'm not sure. That's something I, I'll yeah. Think about. I have I have yeah. worried about like if you ju- if you roll again, you just roll worse, mm-hmm. uh, which is which would feel bad. These are all these are all things that I'll try to. I'm I'm trying to work out like mm-hmm. tweaking as I go. Of like, right. my thing is I've I've also found that failure does not happen often in my game uh, mm-hmm. because you have these tools, um, and I think they will happen more often in a. Um, long-term game but like in a in a one shot you've got convictions or in this case weights to tag uh to let you try to do things and also like if i keep the difficulties at one you're more than likely going to be able to succeed even if both of your abilities are a four so 2d4 will generally like because of the bell curve probably beat 1d8 mm-hmm. right and that's uh, something that you might just have to address yeah. in the math of the game and say right. What is it exactly? Like, how often would I like for mm-hmm. characters to fail? Right. So, like, what should base difficulty be, or what should increasing difficulty look like, or what have you? I I will say, with the push-yourself mechanic I've got, where you're, you're burning your own stress and hit points in order to get better successes, uh, I've found that I may not need you to fail um, very often, um, because you're you're burning the candle at both ends at some point, and this is yeah. gonna come up. This is gonna come to a head. And and also, like I, I want if that's the if that's the case, and you're not failing very often, I can make failure more meaningful. Mm-hmm. 
But I'm, I'm also finding ways to... Because I, I know how I like to do failures, but finding a way to, like, make that rules, because, like, it's it's like a... It's not a rule of thumb I have in my head. It's years of experience running a game. I, I tend to understand, like, if I, fa- if I make them fail in this way, in this specific situation, it's going to not feel good for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I make them fail in this way, it, it may not make them feel good, but it'll give them... Like an emotional reaction that that makes the the, the game more fun, um, right? Or sometimes it, they, they're like, "Yes, that's an amazing," but that's that's hard to like code into when you fail. <laughs> Do exactly this. Mm-hmm. One of the difficulties I think that I encounter as a game designer is uh, what it sounds like you were talking about right there in terms of making explicit or express the internalized like unsaid things that i've learned in running games how do i make those explicit how do i make those mechanical mm-hmm. how do i make them successful that sort yep. of thing uh and and nora uh i love her because she and i'm still gonna try but nora has given me this tool of uh you can't design for bad players i'm still gonna try i'm still gonna try my best but like it like the the, the one the problem i end up running into is like how do I make bad GM, like adversarial GMs play my game correctly? And the answer is you can't. They're adversarial GMs. They're not, they're mm-hmm. not there to tell, and they're probably not going to run my game. So that is true. And maybe it's all of the time that I spend with the system mastery boys. Yeah. But my, I think that you can't design mechanics that obviate shitty players or that obviate people who are going to, to be bad actors. Mm-hmm. I think that you can design games in ways that um, either minimize the impulse to engage in that sort of behavior, yeah, or which minimize the potential that that will be engaged with. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a difficult like needle to thread. Because yeah. you don't want to always be thinking about the worst possible case scenario, but you also don't want to be designing in a way that accidentally opens up someone who says, I want to make a character who's good at this, and then cracks the whole thing open. Yeah. Uh, balance is something that I'm going to have a lot of trouble with because I've got, there's so many different things I need to test. Like, this is part of the problem with having a, a crunchier game. Or not even crunchy, because my game's not that crunchy. But it does have a lot of interactions that you have to test. Mm-hmm. Uh, because all of the jobs are so vastly different and change things, that, like, I don't know if there's a combination that's just going to be like, oh, we auto-succeeded everything all the time in a way that's not interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, playtesting is uh, super helpful for that. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of this is is less of a, a, a major shift to the game, so... And this is a, this is a reason I want. Uh, so Joe played the um, the agent, mm-hmm. which specifically needs failures to use its special ability. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I've always had trouble getting that number of failures up. Also, the initiative system in this game uses failures, uh, and I've been trying to think of ways to get those like get those failures up there. And the, my first uh, idea was to make it to where oh, you mark failures when your partner marks failures too. But mm-hmm. then since failures happen so little that it's still even with that there weren't enough failures around for uh the agent's ability to be very useful um so in this one i've made it to where it you get you mark a failure when you fail or when you fumble and anytime you roll a one on any positive dice 
because all of those things suck. <laughs> like right. anything that happens when, you, when you're like, oh man, I've oh no, I've rolled this bad thing. I that you mark a failure for that. And I'm hoping that'll get those number of failures up. I've also changed it to where you can spend failures for things. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me right now, uh, but I know I, I I took away the reroll. You could reroll. I'm like, I don't want that. I want that to be a weight only thing. This is before I added weights. You can, oh, you can spend it. That's it. You can spend it to automatically generate a, a boon. So that if you need to activate your weapon special ability, you can spend one of your failures to do it. Okay. So there's that. The over the failures and outcomes table, I, I do what you consult when you roll a failure or a success for the GM to look at to see what, like as a guide as to what you should do when these things come up was basically just anything I could think of that I just threw in there. And then like, as I was playing, I, I would consult it, but also I would just be like, okay, this happens then. Uh, so I went through and just took out all the things that didn't make sense tonally or, or that were worded weird, or I made them, uh, I, I condensed them into like one, like two or three things into one thing, shifted them around to like make them the things that I want to happen more come up more often. Mm-hmm. So just, just, just some small fiddly bits on, on the, the GM side there. The biggest problem I had with our playtest uh, was as soon as we started playing, like the second I explained the push yourself mechanic, and, and and got, like, a little bit of resistance on that, I realized the the idea I had for what generates boons and fumbles was way too complicated because it, it involved, like, if this die is higher than this die, you get a boon, and if this die is lower than this die, you get a fumble, and you can get more than one f- It was just way too much, so I just mm-hmm. threw them out completely, okay. that whole, that whole playtest, uh, and didn't interact with them, which, again... Is, is a big part of the flavor of the game. So I've changed it to where it's, it's a static thing. It's, it's on difficulty dice. If you roll an 8, which is the highest you can roll on a difficulty die, you get a boon. It sounds counterintuitive, but I want it to be a consolation prize. Like, yeah, you rolled the highest you could possibly roll on a, on a difficulty die, but you get a boon. You, and you can still succeed and get a boon because if you roll high enough. But y- y- that way you, you still get a boon. Uh, and it's, it's mm-hmm. a 1 in 8 chance. <laughs> Uh, right it's, it's simple it's something if you look at your difficulty dice and you see it's because people will note if uh, without without any prompting if it had no effect oh i rolled max or minimum right that's something that our brains are hard-coded to be like oh that's the smallest i could get <laughs> right so it, it's e- something easy to keep up with that's not getting in the way because i like fumbles and boons a lot but they really just add flavor to the things like for instance most boons unless it's a, unless you have an item or weapon or something that has a specific boon related to it or fumble uh, most boons and fumbles are like something, uh, in, so you, you you do this in an impressive way, or you also get to do this, or uh, with fumbles is like, yeah, you do it, but you've upset somebody, or so, it's like something that drives the narrative, mm-hmm. and I didn't want it to be in the way of rolling. I want rolling to be pretty fast, as far as like, sort of, like, once you see it, it interpreting your role should be, should be a pretty quick situation, and then like, Playing it out is what what takes the mental capacity, right? Rather than yeah. rather than doing math and figuring out what's higher, what's low. To that extent, I have added a thing called complication dice, which are just if you roll a fumble and we can't think of anything fun to do with it, or if I fail because I don't mark failures, I get a complication die, which is just a d8 I can throw into the mix at some other point, or I can spend these these complication dice to generate a fumble the way you would spend a failure. To generate a boon. Okay. Just so if I if I really want your wep your auto fire weapon to just tear up the scenery because I think it's cool, I have I can just activate it if I have a complication die. Mm-hmm. 
And then the boons and fumbles did have some mechanical effects just as a base level, which was like, there were like, there were small things like plus ones and pl- or it was just, it wasn't interesting to me. So I, I changed them all to narrative effects. Again, unless you have a specific mechanical boon or fumble on a piece of equipment uh, or a disposition. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a good simplification. Yeah, because I want I want booms and fumbles to be fun, not to be more more just more math if I could help it. Right. Yeah, and it sounds like you've made that basically instantly glossable by just like, oh, hey, here's my result. Yeah, uh, and and then and it's also like less cumbersome because if you can't think of something for your fumble, you can just mark a fail. If you can't think of anything for your boon, you can mark a uh, a failure with your boon, which just means you can generate a boon later um, right. for when you can think of something you want. Uh, and same with, with, with fumbles is if I, if we can't think of anything fun in the moment, I can just take a complication die. Uh, and, and that way we're not bought. Cause I, a lot of, uh, 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 Genesis and fantasy fuck games, uh, uh, star Wars is probably my favorite system, but sometimes, sometimes when you roll no successes, eight, advantages and a despair it it stops the flow of the game because now you've got what the fuck does that mean yes that is one of my criticisms that i alluded to earlier yeah it, it's it's a weird thing to come up uh and i want to avoid that as much as possible that way like yeah maybe you can't maybe it's hard and hard to interpret it ro- interpret role so you just interpret in the simplest way you can to keep the story moving and then have something interesting happen later Mm-hmm. That way, that that role still happened and it still has an effect on the game. But we're not we're not beholden to do it right here, and you don't have to just let it go. Because a lot of times, what happens is we can't think of anything for that. All right, ignore it, whatever. Right. Which I think is a clunky, not great system. It's not ideal. But yeah, so that's that's all the the uh, things that I've changed from our playtest. Uh, again, the the weights were the biggest thing. Weights and and how fumbles and boons were generated were the biggest things. Uh, but weights took up the most time because it was a it was I as and as I'm redesigning more often, I'm going to tie weights more into things because I I think I really like what it is or what it's trying to do, and I want to tie it into other things too. Yeah, it sounds uh, like that will power the like emotional experience that you want out of the game, and like yeah. the genre experience that you want out of the game. So yeah. So now that you've very graciously came along on this journey with me, we got our closer question, which is if you're the monarch of all gaming, everybody has to listen to you for one day. So you get to make one decree to shift the culture or design or tone of gaming. Just pick it up off of one train track and sit it down on another train track and be like, this is the direction we're going now. Everybody get in line not quite so fascist but you get the idea yeah what would your decree be uh, i think that this probably basically just sits in line with what was discussed earlier uh when i talked about what makes a game a quinn game mm-hmm. uh i have two that i like i think but um again no that... cops here go ahead and say both though all right so the first one uh which is like my runner-up is mm-hmm make more games with eyes toward long-term play experiences especially in the indie space Uh um because i don't want to have to look at one of like four games if i ever want to run something that runs a long time especially for games that i don't really like exactly also like 
like we were saying, those longer running games generally have a, a pretty already well trod emotional arc, uh, or they're trying for a similar thing. Whereas these indie games are doing very good specific stories, but they don't last long enough. Right, exactly. And so my second declaration would be just calling for more considered deliberate choices in regard mm-hmm. to that fundamental emotional experience that any given game is going for and pursuing yeah. that pretty relentlessly through the mechanics of that game. Yeah. Super agree. Those are both very good decrees. Uh, now I'm taking... I, I know I've just given you this crown, but I'm taking it back now. Whoops. Uh, it's for the next person. <laughs> but, geez, thank you so much. One of the reasons I think... Uh, and not to, I'm not blaming you at all, but one of the reasons that last... Playtest was so difficult for me is because I've I've wanted to play a game with you for quite a long time. Like I, I we've we've interacted and stuff, and I'm not putting you on some weird pedestal because I, I know you're a person. We've talked a lot, mm-hmm. uh, but I've never gotten to play a game with you before. And mm-hmm. then like also like a fool, I went ahead and, and listened to more Swallow the South to get to know Joe's demeanor a bit better because I'm ner- I'm a nervous person who over prepares for everything, which also kind of made it like oh I want to I want to play with Joe too. Oh no. <laughs> So I was, my nerves were so high, but, uh, it's been, it's been great getting to interact with you in the game space rather than just through memes on Twitter. Uh, I very much agree. And I'd love to play another game with you. That sounds great. You all heard it. Quinn agreed to play games with me. I did. Um, <laughs> so normally I do, uh, the plugs afterwards, but specifically you've launched a, your or, or announced your new project of, of, uh, arms of the tide and uh, so uh, i know that following the icor and breath arc of uh, an intermission game y'all did or something i've downloaded them all to listen to before it comes up but i haven't actually listened to them yet yeah so it is uh the icor and breath arc of swallows of the south was an off-season arc where we played a game in genesis um, but Genesis didn't really gel for the yeah. group. Um, there are certain things that I think our inclinations as both players and performers mm-hmm. sort of impacted the way that game went in a way that didn't feel uh, preferred. But we really liked the setting that we developed yeah. for that game, where it takes a lot of notes from things like the Final Fantasy games and uh, Ooh, no. Japanese role-playing games in general where you sort of have this world where there's a bunch of, like, magic technology that yes. is abundant. Oh, no. Uh, the places between cities is, like, very mm-hmm. dangerous and rugged. Mm-hmm. And each of these cities has, like, a very unique, vibrant feel and culture. <sighs> so... It's a story about a world where magic basically flows through everything in a very, very minor way, uh-huh. but it pools in certain places called nexes. Uh-huh. And in each nexus, there is a material that's called a catalyst that resonates with the magic that is pooling in the area that uh-huh. allows people to make things uh, with magic and technology. And so these enormous cities build up around these nexuses because that's where magic and technology can happen. That's where city building can happen. 
But if you take the technology beyond the boundaries of the Nexus, it -hmm. loses its resonance with the magic of the world and so becomes useless. Yeah. And Arms of the Tide takes place in a city called Ao, which is Mm -hmm. the city of metal. And it looks a lot sort of... It trades on some cyberpunk-style imagery, but like a little bit different. So metal is what makes magic work there. And the entire city basically is controlled by a large corporation called Ka Technologics. Mm -hmm. And it's a story, at least at its start, about resisting the influence and corruption of Ka Technologics. Especially Mm -hmm. because they recently have... And when I say they, I mean the player characters Uh have discovered some goings on in Ka Technologics that make it seem like they might be doing things which endanger the future of civilization on the whole. Jeez. I don't know I don't know if you know this, but you've just like the eleven year old Chris who played Final Fantasy seven for seventy two hours straight and almost died is crying right now. <laughs> I'm very <laughs> excited for this. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's very much the vibe we're going for and uh, I'm super excited to get to indulge in that. Um, yeah, and Mutants in the Night is uh, a, a Forged in the Dark uh, uh, game, right? Yes, know, it is. I know it's by DC, who uh, I've I've only recently uh, became aware of, but I've then since listened to them on a few podcasts, and man, oh man, do they have some good opinions. So I imagine that game is amazing. Uh, it's really, really good. It's really, really good. Uh, uh and Jeez. I would recommend that you buy it. You can find it on it, or you can buy that game at Dungeon Commander. That's Commander with no R. Dot itch. Dot io. Yep, and you should, and I will. Um, man, thank you so much, Quinn. This has been lovely. Yeah, thank you. Test complete. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Quinn Wilson. Follow them at Monkey Pie Quinn on Twitter. That's M O N K I P I Q U I N N. And look up their Riverdale Review podcast, River Do's and River Don'ts, as well as their Exalted 5e actual play, Swallows of the South. But most importantly, check out their new podcast, Arms of the Tide. Their Session Zero is up on their feed right now, and y'all, it's pretty great. There's a, there's a robot, uh, a cool rebellious teen. I think she's a teen. I'm not sure. But also, there's a flaming plant wolf. So, yeah, check it out. And a big thank you to Matt Lee for our intro and outro music. Follow him at Nice Wizard Music. Support us by following on Twitter at PlaytestPod. Download all current documents, including the one uploaded with this episode, uh, version 1.2, at playtest.pub. And find a link to our Discord from either of those to join our creative, friendly community. And remember, everyone, the world may suck sometimes, but you don't, and neither does Crunch, so long as it's done with purpose. Or if we're talking about cereal. Love me some crunchy cereal. Have a nice week.